this morning. We're looking at uh, Mark chapter 7, and uh, I've taken just a portion out of the beginning of Mark, and I know I encourage you, if you're on the email list, I kind of encourage you to read um, that whole passage up to about verse 23. Um, And I'm going to read kind of two sections from there. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just going to read part of it. I think this, uh, this part of Mark really is a conversation about the essence of the Christian faith. Um, at its core, what is the Christian faith about? Uh, it also is a conversation, I would say, about the human condition. That There are some fairly blunt words about who we are. Uh, that Jesus uh, shares in this passage. And so I'm going to read part of it, and then we'll move from there. Mark 7, verses roughly 2 to 4. They, that's the Pharisees, the religious folk, notice that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands, as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. And then I'm going to move ahead a little bit to same chapter, verses 14 to 23. Then Jesus called the crowd to come and hear, and he said, All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. And then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. And he said, Well, don't you understand either? He asked, can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? I mean, it's possible that it may not be good for you, but in this context, it's it's not going to defile you. Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. This is the New Living Translation. (laughs) By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. I think in this uh, part of Mark's gospel, uh, most of Jesus' audience would have been, I believe, primarily Jewish people. Um, So these are people that certainly have an awareness of God. They would be aware of how God has worked in their people, through their people, throughout the history. So they would historically have sort of probably assumed that they were God's people, they were God's children. And so in a way, they were very religious 
or religious-minded people. And yet in this conversation that Jesus has, especially with the leaders, um, he paints such a stark contrast between what it kind of means to be religious. And I think Jesus is directing them to something that is completely different from that. That there is something that Jesus says, I have come to give you something that is not like that. And I was wondering a little bit this week whether religion or faith is actually necessary for life at all. I think in the day that Jesus was speaking, as I say, most of the people would have seen themselves as being at least somewhat believers in God, and even the, uh, likely the countries around them would have believed in other gods or many gods. Um, but I think today we actually increasingly see people who attempt to live without any religious framework or religious conviction. And, and so we sometimes say and we sometimes call our world an increasingly secular society. And as I was looking a little bit about, okay, what does that actually mean? And, and this little definition came up. It said it refers to the declining influence of religion and religious values within a culture. And secular humanism, and those often are talked together, means loosely a belief in human self-sufficiency. And it went on to say, and this is not a Christian writer, this was certainly a secular writer, he said, in the field of social sciences, religion is often discussed within the context of three Bs. Belief, behavior, and belonging. And I saw that and it almost gave me goosebumps because I thought that is beautiful. In fact, it's almost a beautiful template for me to think about my own faith. And I thought if there was kind of a place on the wall where we could sort of put something that would make people think about who we are as a church, I might put up their belief, behavior, and belonging. And you might say, well, that could raise a lot of questions. And my answer would be, yeah, but they'd probably be very good questions. So I love that, and I'm going to stick a little bit to that throughout this morning. So in a truly secular society, people do not believe in supernatural beings, entities, or realms. In a secular society, people do not engage in religious behaviors or practices. In a truly secular society, people do not identify as religious or even as a member of a religious community. So, Belief, behavior, and belonging, the things that I think the Christian faith speaks to so powerfully. A secular world might say, well, yeah, that's not our framework for life. But as I thought about that, I thought that even if you remove God, if you remove faith, if you remove a conversation about religion from life, or attempt to remove it, it doesn't really 
remove the reality of these three B's. That somehow belief, behavior, and belonging is simply replaced by something else. Perhaps the belief becomes more in self-sufficiency of man. Uh, maybe the belief is more and you know, they might say the inherent goodness of man is going to win out. Maybe it's partially a, a belief in science and our ability to get it right. Behavior, I, I think our society is really struggling with this one, apart from God. That we really are, it seems to me, increasingly, behavior is seen more as unrestricted freedom, sort of within, you might say, the confines of the law. So that in human behavior, the goal is pretty much freedom of personal expression, and if you don't like the laws about that, then you change the laws to expand what it means to enjoy personal freedom of expression. Belonging, well, I think, you know, still in belonging, people apart from God would say, well, family may give them a sense of belonging, friends may give them more like-minded people. But I sometimes, as I sort of watch and listen and think about society and where the world is, um, it almost seems at times to me that the more we push for personal rights and freedoms, the more almost troubled and fractured our society seems to be. Um, and I thought that freedom to live as you please, and I think the Bible would support this, comes with a great price, both personally and even as a society. And so I, I think sometimes that the dividing line between the thinking of this world and the teachings of Jesus is becoming increasingly clear. And I do not think that's a bad thing for the church. That who we are, what we believe, our behavior, and even to a certain extent our sense of belonging. I almost sometimes think the more it actually contrasts the world around us, the healthier it should be for the church. In Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus confronts religious leaders. Now, these religious leaders definitely had a belief system. They had behavioral expectations that were, um, I don't even know what word to use. They had crafted so many laws to govern human behavior that every little part of your life was dictated by laws, most of which the religious leaders had written. And they certainly identified as a religious group or a religious community. And yet Jesus is so tough and so direct with them. And he says in Mark 7, verse 6 and 7, these people, and he's talking about religious leaders, he says, you honor me or they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as if they were commands from God. 
you skillfully, and I like the way the New Living put that, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own traditions. You might say they've exchanged obedience. They've exchanged a relationship with God for rules and regulations. And Jesus would say to them, you actually believe keeping these rules and regulations somehow makes you acceptable to God. In the Old Testament, people were often warned, don't create idols. Don't fashion other gods out of wood or metal or whatever. Don't do it. There's no life in them. It's like these people had crafted an idol of, I will call it laws, rules, regulations. That kind of was their golden calf, if I would put it that way. And Jesus is saying to them, don't do that either. And he gives an interesting example, a very down-to-earth, very practical example. I think it's the fifth commandment that says, honor your father and your mother. And he says to these religious leaders, you have found a way of getting around that commandment. He said, you've got moms and dads in your audience, in your group, who are very needy. And you actually have money with which you could help them, but you say, oh, sorry, can't do that. That money is put aside for God. And he takes them to task about that. And it, it made me remember um, a bit of a, it's a sad illustration, but it, it kind of fits here, um, of a businessman who was a very successful businessman. He was a Christian businessman. And an employee went to him and said, you know what, I, I really, I've been here for a while, I really would like to see a raise. And the response of the employer to the employee was, well, you know, I'd like to do that, but I'm giving that money to God. And it's, in a way, such a, I'm almost going to call it compartmentalizing of life. There's these religious things I do, and then there's the real people with whom I interact, and the two are kind of like separate. And when I think about the Christian faith, what we believe, if it's not connected to how we behave, that's a problem. Religion, with all its beliefs, its behavior, and even with its sense of belonging, can be, and often is, empty, unsatisfying, and I'm going to say restricting. And perhaps an extreme example of that are many religious cults where people actually feel trapped. Religious cults are not without strong beliefs. Religious cults are not without strong behavioral expectations. In fact, sometimes that's really what helps identify them. And they also have the sense of belonging, but that belonging can actually really quickly feel like entrapment. So many people have abandoned religion for exactly these reasons, and I would say I 100% understand why. 
that I would abandon that too. If it's unsatisfying, if it seems empty, if it actually doesn't somehow give me life, why would I hang on to it? And Jesus says, what I offer is something completely different. He says, I have come to offer you life. I come to offer you life to the full. It is meant to be freeing. It is meant for your good. I'm not quite sure how secular humanists rationalize the reality of evil. Uh, I think it exists all around us in very obvious ways. Uh, to some extent, um, Jesus is going to say in this passage, it actually lives in us. We can see these things within us as people. And so God, Jesus, the Word of God, I think paints a very direct and honest picture about who we are. Um, he talks very openly about things we would like other people to think don't exist in our life, but actually do. And Jesus is saying that when it comes to those things, that aspect of life, hand washing is not going to cut it. Hand washing is not going to cover it. And so when the Pharisees said, well, your disciples don't seem to be washing their hands before they do this and before they do that. And Jesus says to them, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. And as I thought about that list, which seems quite long, it is certainly not exhaustive. Like if you sat down, you could probably say, oh, he didn't mention anger or impatience. But there's enough in that list that struck me that if you go through that list and assume you can wash your hands of all of that, you have missed some of the things on that list. The other thing I want to say about this list, and um, I hope you'll bear with me, um, I do not think Jesus is saying that this list defines us. Because I also believe, and I think Jesus would probably agree, that good thoughts, love, generosity, kindness, compassion also live in people's hearts. Um, I think the point is that if we try to pretend that we are incapable of or not responsible for the reality that we can do things we're not proud of that are sinful, that are bad, we are fooling ourselves. And so I think I look at that and I think for people who consider sin to be sort of this strange religious theological concept, I look at that list and it sort of gives a very practical face to what sin is. And I thought about that practical face as actually mine. 
That's what sin is about. Those are the things that God would say. These are things that keep us from being acceptable in God's sight. And I'm not going to make things right through religious practices. I thought about the religion often, I think, gives people a right to move to a sense of pride and self-righteousness. And that's really not a pretty thing to see in people, in people of God. For us to accept what Jesus offers, we need to confess. We need to repent. We need to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus' death, resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ covered everything that I would say hand-washing simply glossed over. And to me, this is a message of such relief and freedom. The religious leaders saw impurity and unclean things all around them. They saw it in food, they saw it in things, and they saw it in people. And I think this leads into the rest of chapter 7. The religious people would have avoided lepers. They would have avoided tax collectors. They would have tried to avoid Samaritan people. If possible, they'd walk around or not go through their territory. In fact, they would have avoided almost everybody from different ethnic group. And this sort of avoidance of things that sort of they deemed to be impure was what created to them a very distorted view of righteousness. And Jesus says, you are hypocrites. And it's not our traditional understanding of what it means to be a hypocrite. It's not that they didn't live out what they said they believed because the Pharisees were religious about trying to live out what they believe. He called them hypocrites because while their hands might appear clean, their hearts were a mess. That Jesus would say you are playing a role that you want others to believe reflects who you are but it is all a facade. You are actors, you are pretenders, and Jesus would say to them, I see right through you. And it's very interesting, as you go through the Gospels, the very things, the very food, the very people that the religious leaders would have seen as unclean, people to avoid, are exactly the people that Jesus was willing to touch, with whom he spent time, with whom he shared meals, and likely would have shared utensils. Jesus is fully aware of who we are. And Jesus is fully aware of what we struggle with. And one of the freeing things I think about the gospel, about faith, is that we are not ever asked to put on pretenses we are never asked to pretend. And in fact, I believe that confession and repentance free us 
from a life of phony self-righteousness. And I think back, I forget what chapter it was, I should know it. When Jesus sent out his disciples with a message, he sent them out two by two. It might have been just Mark 6. And he said, I want you to preach a message of, I don't know if you remember, repentance. It wasn't a message about, you might say, health or wealth. It wasn't a message about a spiritual experience. It was a message about repentance. An honest declaration that these things that God says do exist in, uh, in the hearts of man. Yes, God, those things exist in me, and I need to repent of them. And so becoming a child of God, the Christian faith involves, I think, honesty about who we are and a willingness to humble ourselves before God. In Mark 7, you have a whole group of people who have come to God with other things. They've come to God with other offerings. They've come to God with other religious practices. And I believe Jesus is saying, if you don't come with repentance, humility, and honesty before God, you will actually never taste the freedom or the newness of life that Jesus came to bring. Religious experience, I think, without confession and repentance will not last. Uh, Religious experiences sometimes come and go. An acknowledgement of who we are and what Christ has done for us is something that lasts. So I think the passage is a call for self-examination and the need, certainly in the Pharisees, for a change of heart. A renewed heart and completely a renewed mind completely a new way of thinking about what does it mean to have faith in God. So the Christian faith frees us, I think, to be honest about who we are. That honesty doesn't in any way, shape, or form make us perfect. In an Alpha Thursday night, we talked about what does it mean to resist evil. That we know good and well that a conversion experience is not equal, does not equal perfection. But it does make us forgiven and it does make us acceptable in the sight of God who we embrace as our Father through confession and repentance. I think we need to look beyond the food and drink aspect of this passage. What Jesus was talking here was about, okay, what you put into your mouth, what you eat, But I think there is at least a caution, and it's probably a whole different message that I could speak. I still think we need to be very cautious and very intentional about what we feed ourselves. That this passage does not give us somehow free reign to take in or absorb whatever we want. That our goal as children of God is to become more and more transformed into the image and the character of Jesus. And so if I use a very simple example, 
So while the entire restaurant menu is free game for me, perhaps the entire menu in the movie theaters, the entire menu on the internet, the entire menu in other areas of life is not completely free to me. I think the battle for our hearts and minds of children of God in 2017 is one in which the media plays an increasingly powerful role. I think all good parents are aware of this battle. Parents outside the framework of faith, this sense of needing to protect their children, their young people from stuff that they know is not good. But as Christian parents, I think we need to be even more engaged in discerning what is good and what is actually leading to conformity with the world. And so what we take in, in many ways in life, is actually very important. I want to end, however, this morning just to go back to the three B's of belief behavior and belonging. As I thought about that this week, and it's been rattling around there all week, I kind of like it, I hope it stays there, that the Christian faith is a beautiful affirmation about all of these. It provides to me a perspective and a purpose to life that truly is life-giving. And although there are aspects about my faith, those things that I believe that are kind of beyond what I can understand, I embrace them and they actually make sense to me. That I believe that God exists. This morning we've sung praises to him. I believe Jesus was and is the Son of God. I know I'm a sinful man. I I don't actually struggle with that concept. I know that's true. But I also believe I'm a forgiven child of God. I also believe that I will experience life eternal. I think it's such a... You could add to that. You could probably say, well, Doug, you could have said this, you could have said that. All of these things put a smile on my face and feel good in my heart. These things that I hold to as being true and as being central to who I am, I would say not only influence my behavior, they actually guide and direct my behavior. As flawed as it still is, these beliefs cause me to think, okay, then how should I live? And Paul talks about that in virtually every one of the letters that he writes to the church is about walking in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called to as a child of God. And it's about love, it's about patience, it's about kindness, it's about generosity. That our beliefs need to be expressed in that kind of behavior. And belonging. I thought this was such a wow thought for me about how important belonging is within the Christian faith within the church of God.
I mean, I have a beautiful family who I love dearly and we are close. I have some very good friends around me in my life. And they all do sort of speak into the sense of belonging. But not necessarily every Christian would say that they have those things in their life. Uh, that family is, is maybe a bit fractured and, and difficult. Um, some people may even say, well, don't have a lot of close friends around me. But there is a sense of belonging within the church of God and as people of God that is meant to be something so much deeper. And I think it's one of the amazing calls that God has upon us as his children within his church that truly within her, we need to know that this is a place where we belong. And I know how we love one another is at best sort of, I don't know, messy. We don't always get that right. We don't even necessarily know how, how do I love everyone. But in spite of that, there's a sense of belonging when you come through the doors here and sit down. It's like, oh my goodness, this is where I belong as a child of God, surrounded by other children of God. And then there's the fact that God sees us as his children. That even in the quietness of uh, when you're all by yourself, wherever that might be, that there's deep sense that you and I have a heavenly father who loves us, who knows us, knows all about us, and he calls us sons and daughters, heirs to an incredible eternity. And all of these things, I thought, this is the beauty of the Christian faith. So I don't know, I don't know if you want to have belief, behavior, and belonging stuck in your head. But for me this week, it was such a, a good and sort of practical way to think about what it means to be part of the family of God, what it means to embrace the Christian faith. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the message of Mark 7. I want to thank you, God, that you call us uh, not uh, to, to do certain things or, or follow certain rules, but, Father, you call us into a relationship in which you are our Father and we are your children. Father, would you allow us to embrace that in ways that we maybe haven't even thought of? Father, as we spend time alone with you, may we simply, truly cry out to you as Abba, Father. Father, would we truly embrace about it what it means to be forgiven? God, that it would free us to live a life that is not full of pretenses or pretending, but simply humble acknowledgement that we are people who need a Savior, and Jesus is our Savior. So, Father, help us this week. I thank you for this time together as your church. I thank you for the songs that we've sung. And, Father, would you walk with us this week as your children. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.